Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, as well as streaming to you on Arut Sheva, Israel National News slash radio. And we're proud on the show to uh, welcome a new sponsor for 2016, the S4 Group. S4 has a is a political advocacy, government relations, public relations firm uh, with offices throughout the country. And they have a very informative weekly newsletter on politics and policy. I urge you to subscribe. Go to www.s4grp.com. Scroll down. You'll find the link. Uh, just We're going to switch gears a little bit from our usual format. Uh, I want to have a little bit of a special show this week as we enter 2016, the year of the presidential race. I'm proud to have with us one of the preeminent uh, observers as research and researchers with regard to the Jewish community here in the United States, a professor, a sociologist at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, and one who studies the uh, studies the Jewish community within and without. Uh, proud to have Stephen M. Cohen, uh, Dr. Stephen M. Cohen, on with us for the very first time here on Spin Class. Dr. Cohen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So you've written articles and as well as books uh, studying the American Jewish community, the contemporary American Jewish community. And one thing that has held true for throughout the decades, I think at least in the post-war Jewish community, is the Himmelfarb quote uh, that uh, Jews earn like Episcopalians and vote like Puerto Ricans. And not to be... uh, not to uh, cast aspersions on any other community, but it really is a way of saying that the Jewish community, by and large, is firmly in the Democratic Party column. Uh, how is that changing? Is that a truism? Does you know in your studies will that be staying the same? Yeah, I think I think that's still still a fair statement. Um, uh, basically, the Jews split seventy uh, thirty, Democrat Republican with the 30% consisting largely of Orthodox Jews um, and first and second generation um, Israelis and Russian Jews and Persian Jews um, and some older Jews. Um, but uh, all the others um, uh, on presidential elections um, vote Democratic, also locally. And that's because the uh, Jewish population splits 50% liberal, 30% moderate, and 20% Conservatives, um, and so they uh, their, their their party uh, vote uh, reflects their their politics as well. So let's talk for a second about changes. You're studying changes, and I know you're involved in a lot of research and population surveys on the changes within the Jewish community. Uh, you see, I would say, or read the a bifurcation, right of of the both religiously as well as those that are intermarried versus not intermarried. Those are have a more commitment to the Jewish, uh, to, to Jewish continuity. Um, and, and so the more committed Jewish, I, I hate to, I don't want to put on any labels, but there is a somewhat of a bifurcation going on within the American Jewish community. Correct? Right, well, that, that's fair enough. You, you, we can split the community into three groups. One we'll, we'll, we'll call Orthodox, and there's a lot of variety of Orthodox, so let's just, Label label the Orthodox. Right now, there's ten percent of the uh, adult population, and the other group on the other other side are um, partially Jewish um, in a variety of ways. They they actually a good number of them say they're partially Jewish when they ask the question. 
Um, but they could be uh, they could be Jewish with uh, no religion, Jewish uh, um, with uh, uh, with multiple identities. Um, in, in the Europe in the Europe, in the Europe population study, we found that five percent were Jewish with a different religion. Uh, we we call them Jewish because one they said they were Jewish, and sociologists tend to tend to rely on people's self-definition, but they also have a Jewish parent or two. Uh, and yet they said, well, I'm, I'm Roman Catholic, um, but I'm Jewish. Um, and that's, that's now possible in modern America, post-modern America. Uh, and they, in fact, one, one respondent said, am I Jewish? Well, I'm Jewish with my father, but I'm Christian with my mother. And, and so we're, we, we live in an age of... Uh, What's called hybridity, the, uh, hybrid, you know, having different identities that come together that used to be impossible to put together. So that population is growing uh, enormously. Um, and then in between, we have the engaged, um, we have the engaged um, non-Orthodox, um, and uh, whatever your measure of engagement, there basically are fewer and fewer of them uh, as time goes on. Uh, in the 50 to 69 generation, there's 1.8 million um, non-Orthodox Jews of all kinds, and then between 30 and 49 years old, there's only 1.2 million, and their levels of Jewish involvement are, are lower. So basically, in, in, the, in the older generation, you have twice as many active Jews, however you define it, as in the younger generation. And that's, that, that, that seems to be the trend. So basically, to put it all, to put it all together, a sharp growth of the Orthodox, uh, almost a sharp growth of the partially or nominally Jewish and declining numbers of engaged non-Orthodox. Now, I saw that you wrote on the uh, for the reform movement, The I think your contention is that the news is not all bad, uh, is that they have had a market increase in affiliation, uh, perhaps uh, since between right. 1990, 623,000, and then in 2013, 756,000. Uh, that uh, what what is is right. that stealing in a sense from the conservative? Well, it's, it's like they're like you know they're like a they're like a lake that has got two rivers flowing into it, one from the orthodox and one's from the conservatives. So over the years, the um, uh, the children of the orthodox, a small number, um, you know, might have become reformed. Um, especially since orthodoxy was a very uh, 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 broadly defined identity, it, it wasn't. It, it's not as sharply defined as it is today. And, and conservatism was like, you know, that's the big stream, and they they used to be like you know two thirds of identified Jews in 1950s and 60s, and that stream has been, you know, kind of drying up, and a lot of its a lot of its flow has gone into reform. So from 1990 to 2013. They still are benef- reform is benefiting from the flow of a little bit of you know, like a you know ex-orthodox stream and a and a big flow of um, ex-reform uh, ex-conservative stream. But those two streams are pretty you know are no longer resupplying the reform movement. And at the other end, the reform movement is um, raising um, children with a large propensity to intermarry. Something like eighty percent, eight eight zero percent. People who were raised reformed were married in the last 13, 14 years, married non-Jews. And a lot of those people, uh, you know, don't, don't come back. They don't, they don't identify strongly as Jews, and they don't identify as reformed. They identify as, like, you know, non-denominational, nothing. 
so um, the, the, the the recent past has been very good. The uh, for for reform, the uh, upcoming future certainly is going to be more trouble and more challenging. And we're talking to Dr. Stephen Cohen of Hebrew Union College, a sociologist and demographer, one who has done extensive research on the American Jewish community. Uh, let's talk for about the conservative movement. And I think that's one of the big takeaways from recent population surveys is the shrinking of the center of the Jewish community. I think you, you alluded to engaged non-Orthodox. Uh, I don't know if that's synonymous with the conservative movement, with conservative Judaism. But, uh, no, no, I, it also, I, I'll, I'll interrupt you. It also includes reform, please. Okay, it's, sure. Uh, engaged reform and reform. And, I, I, for that purpose, I put them together. They're, oh, please correct uh, they're, me. They're very the, different. Yeah, no, it's good. They're very different, but uh, engaged non-Orthodox Jews can be reformed or conservative. And there, you know, there are a few who are Reconstructionists, but there's sure. a very small number. And so, even, even a few who are secular. So, so let's so, talk about the atrophy um, of the conservative movement. Well, why? <laughs> because <laughs> well, because... It really hasn't atrophied at all. It's, uh, it's, it's shrunk in numbers, um, and, um, but, the, but it looks like the decline... Uh, at least as a market share of the non orthodox population has 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 bottomed out. Like they're still running around twenty percent of non orthodox Jews for, for two generations are conservative. The problem is there are fewer Jews around. But they're still holding the twenty percent of that number. Um, and their um, their Jewish uh, I, you know, engagement and vending rates are pretty high. Um, I mean, again, compared to the rest, rest of the of the population uh, who are not Orthodox, uh, something like thirty percent of conservative parents have at some point sent their kids to day school. Now, to an Orthodox audience, that may that may not seem very impressive, but we have to remember that uh, um, you know, compared to other American Jews who who are who are not Orthodox, uh, that's you know that's, that's sky high. You know, it's really much much higher than. Anybody else? I think the reform numbers may be maybe nine percent, and then then there's like you know non-denominational, which is like you know three or four. But there's also differences in kashrut, differences in engagement with Israel, differences in support for Jewish organizations, um, differences in celebrating Jewish holidays, and just showing up and going to shul. Um, so the conservative movement actually, uh, you know, it the only thing reckon this way that that the, the movement is and. Um, is seen as much weaker than it is. Uh, and reform movement is seen as much stronger than it is. So both both of those movements need a, a correction in their public image um, uh, so that the leadership can take, take appropriate action. And there, there are different actions in each, in each case. Well, I, the reason I... I don't want to get, I certainly don't want to get this wrong, and I think it's important, particularly for this audience, to understand the world of non-orthodoxy, and we'll get to orthodoxy in a second, uh, because you know, if you're a political activist, and you're the, there are, you can't just rely, certainly in most of the country, on the orthodox community or the highly engaged community alone. It's the casual, or, or say more casual, or less involved, less committed, not necessarily the day school educated person that forms a very significant reservoir of pro-Israel support, and it's very vital. And there's certainly, uh, you, I, I think it's a mistake for anyone in the Orthodox community to be uh, triumphal about the success of Orthodoxy uh, to, to 
specifically deride other movements as it. So that's that as as not being successful right. because they are important from a community perspective. I think that you know we 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 make a mistake when isolating ourselves as a, I and I speak as an Orthodox Jew uh, to to doing that. So that that was you know that was the reason for, for that. But I think that uh, if you're if we're missing that. Engagement uh, that is, you know, that is a problem. That is a long-term problem for American Jewry. So maybe we can get to that before we get to the Orthodox movement. Uh, just talk about from a pro-Israel activist perspective, and pro-Israel changes uh, as you go different along the spectrum. Uh, is are we in danger of having a Jewish community that is less pro-Israel uh, going forward, 10, 20 years from now? Um, yes. <clears throat> the um, I used to think that intermarriage alone was the major factor in kind of peeling off Israel-engaged Jews. And, you know, the, the intermarried and the unmarried have wildly different scores on Israel engagement. You know, I talk about Israel, I care about Israel, I go to Israel, I give money for Israel, you know, things, things like that, right? So um, I used to think, I mean, I, think, I used to think it was the case. Uh, based on a research in 2007, 2010, that, that that intermarriage was the major issue. Starting in 2012 or so, 2011, 12, um, I would say after Peter Peter Barnett published his what would turn out to be a prescient article. I think he was just a little early, but maybe maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, certainly by 2012, 13, 14, we see um, a large number of Jews who are um, politically offended by Israel, and therefore also uh, are um, moving away from attachment to Israel. In other words, you can have people, you, you, we need to divide the pro-Israel population into two groups, uh, a right-wing group and a left-wing group. Um, uh, most of the organizations are right-wing, but we have to remember there are left-wing pro-Israel people who are sure. critical of Israel treatment of Palestinians and wanting occupation to end and so forth, but they're pro-Israel. Uh, just like, you know, their counterpart voters in in uh, southern Jerusalem, where I live part of my time, or North Tel Aviv, where, where my daughter lives uh, all, all the time. So, um, uh, so, but now what we're seeing is that the formerly pro-Israel left, or the people who would be in the pro-Israel left, are now in the Israel disengaged you know, quadrant. In other words, they're saying, uh, leave me alone with Israel. Uh, I, I don't want to talk about it. First of all, it always starts arguments, and I, I, I don't like arguments. And the second thing is, look, I really, I, 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 I used to really like Israel, and my parents loved Israel, and so forth and so on. I've been to Israel, and uh, I, I've, I've, I've gone on birthright, I've led birthright, I've seen no Hebrew, I'm mean, giving me different you know, real people right now. But I, I just can't stand the politics, so I'm going to do other things. You know, I'll go to show, I'll do... I'll, you know, I'll get involved, but Israel will not be on, on my agenda. And there are a lot of, lot of uh, conservative and reform rabbis right now who, and I did a study of these people, and, and they say, uh, I, I called it re reluctant or repressed. And they say either they're reluctant to bring up Israel, or they feel repressed. If they, if they bring up Israel, they get, they'll, they'll get shot from the, you know, metaphorically, from the left and the right. So instead of bringing up Israel, they they give sermons on other things, you know. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot you can talk about from the Torah. So you don't have to, you don't have to talk about Israel. It's okay. Um, sure. And so there are a lot of congregations that just are stuck. They, 
the kids of Israel because everybody, you know, all of all about them will go after each other, and the and the old and the young will go after each other. So, so as opposed to when I grew up, where Israel was, you know, like the thing, um, uh, it's now uh, he's turned to the side. I, I regret that as a as an Israeli and as a Zionist. I think it's really it's really awful, but that's what's happening. Yeah, certainly seems that there is a, and we're talking about the, you talk you referenced the Peter Beinart article, which showed uh, talked about contradictions between liberals and pro-Israel. Uh, that it's you know kind of inconsistent with what he turned to be liberal values. And I'm sure that that rung true with many uh, many American Jews who considered themselves uh, liberals. Uh, and we're talking to Dr. Stephen Cohen from Hebrew Union College, a demographer, a sociologist, a researcher about the American Jewish community. And I want to get into an article, an op-ed you wrote for the Jewish Week recently, which uh, chronicled or at least profiled the spectacular, what I think what you call the spectacular resurgence of orthodoxy uh, mm-hmm. at, here in the United States and what that portends right. or what that means for communities uh, throughout the, the United States. I guess, you know, where in New York, New Jersey, and elsewhere where there are significant orthodox communities. Well, essentially, the, 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 the numbers like this uh, of, of American Jewish adults today, 10% are orthodox. But of Jews under the age of 18, 27% are being raised in Orthodox homes. And uh, for Jews under the age of 5, it's 35%, a third. In the New York area, where I did my research recently with several or seven colleagues, the UJA Federation, we found that 61% of the children, of Jewish children in the New York 8-county area were, were Orthodox, and 74% of the children in the five boroughs. Of, of New York, of New York City, were Orthodox. There, there are more Hasidic children in the New York area than there are conservative children in the New York area. Just to give you like a, a slice of one and a slice of the other, it's, it's huge. Wow. The um, Orthodox population is having 4.1 children uh, on average for, um, per couple, and and um, and the uh, per, you know it's called per woman because it's less counted, and the. Uh, and the non-Orthodox are having 1.7, and not all the non-Orthodox are are um, you know marrying Jews. Most of them are marrying non-Jews, so they raise their kids as not Jewish. So there's sharp declines on the horizon. 20 years from now, 30 years from now, in in the proportion of Orthodox versus non-Orthodox, with the one proviso, and that is 20% of the Orthodox leave Orthodox. And they, and, they, and they show up elsewhere. That, you know, they, the, the most active member of the conservative shul is someone who used to be Orthodox. Yeah, it's a, also, also Reformed Temple. So uh, right now, uh, 20% are leaving, which is much lower than it's been in the past. But if 20% of 35% leave, you know, if we, we're talking about leaving uh, that uh, you know, exodus of a larger population, that will mean a beginning of re- a replenishment of the other movements. Of course, life is never linear and things could change, but um, there's always been people who left orthodoxy, and always been people who left other, let's call them, firm religions in, 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 uh, in, in America. In Mormons, uh, evangelical Christians, they all lose people. There's no reason why orthodoxy shouldn't lose people as well. What does this mean for the organized Jewish community on how to, and when I say that, I guess I mean the federation world or the 
conference of presidents worlds, if you, the establishment, and how to deal with the Jewish community and, and this trend towards with the Orthodox becoming more of a percentage and more numerous, are they able to adapt to a more, orth- in certain areas, in a more Orthodox, to a more Orthodox uh, community? Um, they, I mean, the answer is yes. Uh, modern Orthodoxy becomes very pivotal in this period of time. Modern Orthodox Jews, I'm sorry, I'm in, a, I'm in an airport, I'm sorry. Uh, no the, 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 the modern Orthodox Jews play a pivotal role in that they can reach out both to their more traditional counterparts, the Haredi Jews, and they can reach out to non-Orthodox Jews who engage in Jewish life. So, although they're 3% of the population, they're, they're now more critical only because they're intermediate, and they're, they're very active, and they're acceptable to many sides. Um, so one thing we have to do is to try to improve the relationships between modern Orthodox Jews and serious non-Orthodox Jews so that we can you know, keep the Jewish people together. Um, so the you know, New York Federation, as an example, you know, just appointed a wonderful man, uh, Eric Goldstein, um, who is himself modern Orthodox, a very, very successful attorney, philanthropist. Um, he happens to be a neighbor of mine. I see, I see him at the Memo's favorite foods on, on West 72nd Street, with his, eating dinner, eating lunch or breakfast with his daughters. Uh, he's there, and, um, but seriously, he, uh, you know, he kind of, he may represent a trend where you see modern Orthodox Jews stepping up and, uh, and taking leadership in, uh, in what you call the establishment organization. So that would be very positive. Okay, Stephen Cohen, Dr. Stephen Cohen from Hebrew Union College, a researcher, sociologist, demographer of American Jewish, uh, American Jewish life. I really appreciate your time here on Spin Class, and this has really been a most informative segment, and hopefully we'll have you in the very fu- near future. Thank you for your good work. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. And this is Spin Class, and as we all know, this is the week for speeches, State of the State, State of the Union. President Obama gave his last State of the Union, and we are very pleased to have back on the show Dan Gerstein, president of Gotham Ghostwriters, a versatile, perceptive, battle-tested communication strategist and nationally recognized political commentator. Dan Gerstein, welcome back to Spin Class. Uh, thank you. You can also mention recovering speechwriter. Yes, recovery. Well, we're ha- I was going to get to the speechwriter part. As a recovering speechwriter, Dan, t- yeah. talk to us about the last State of the Union. Obama promised to, to be different, and how different was it really from a State of the Union that the seven he's given beforehand? Um, I think it's somewhat different from um, not just the, the seven he gave before, but the sort of what the State of the Union has evolved into, which is just sort of a laundry list. Uh, policy ideas and proposals um, and, you know, political issues the president wants to tee up for the coming year. And in this case, um, you know, I think what President Obama did was to some degree, um, you know, uh, not tee up the next year, but tee up the next um, presidency. Uh, And sort of, you know, this was a, a passing of the baton speech to sort of say, okay, here's what we got done, here's what we still need to get done. And, um, and, you know, to some degree, using the power of the bully pulpit to shape the conversation that's going to happen in this coming presidential campaign. So two things stuck out for me about the speech. One was the not-so-veiled reference to Donald Trump. 
and which I thought was, you know, the president says he's not going to wade into that. Why did he decide that he wanted to uh, refer to Donald Trump? And uh, Nikki Haley in the response did the same thing. And number two was this was his talk about postpartisanship and that he hoped to accomplish that. Uh, you know, many people would think that uh, he has been pretty partisan. You know, Obamacare was a pretty partisan uh, uh, thing. And all in all, it really wasn't that this administration rose above the partisanship. Now, it could be Republicans are at fault for that. It could be the Democrats. It, probably everybody's at fault for that. But in a way, you didn't really see a lot out of this administration really rising above the partisanship. Uh, not, not that I'm saying that anybody could. So just uh, tackle those two for me. Right. Well, let me take the second one first, because that's to me that was the main takeaway of the speech was that more than anything, this was a concession speech. Uh, a lot of presidents who served two terms used the final state of the union as a valedictory. Right. This is this is my legacy speech. This is what I've accomplished. Um, and to some degree, President Obama, with this speech, um, he threw in some you know um, nods into his own direction of, about some of the progress we've made and some of the big things that uh, accomplished over the last eight years, but. On the, the most important thing that he set out to do to change the politics, he fairly candidly and, and, and without um, being too elliptical, admitted that he failed. Um, and the, the line that I will, will take away from the speech was where he said that, you know, a president with the gifts of a Roosevelt or Reagan probably would have done a better job of bridging the partisan divide. And that was, to me, his, his admission that he... Um, no matter what his, whether he made a good faith effort or not, we can debate that, to try and rise above partisanship and, and bring the country together, that he failed. And um, and that to some degree, then, that leads to the first, point, first question raised about Trump. And his point, to a large degree, with speech was about, uh, you know, teeing up for the country, what, they have a choice. We can go in the direction of the demagogue, um, the, the fear-based message he's um, proposing, um, or we can, um, you know, make change work for us. And I thought that was a very compelling um, framing of the, the next phase of American political life um, and, and the best part of the speech. And it really kind of, to some degree, um, made me somewhat, it was bittersweet in that it, it kind of reminded us of Obama's potential and the gifts he, he did have coming into office um, as someone who was very eloquent, who was able to, you know, communicate a vision, um, and have an understanding of what was happening in the world. Unfortunately, you know, what he couldn't do was um, take that vision and persuade people to follow him. So is that, a fun is that a communications function? Is that a nuts and bolts, a blocking and tackling type of function? I mean, where is... I've always been very impressed with his speeches. I've always been very impressed with his oratory, with his story and the way he presents. Where was... Is it is it the failure of his people to do the work necessary? I mean, where where does the fault lie in that concession? Because uh, wow, we, well, we could we could devote an entire show or entire series <laughs> to that analysis, okay. Michael. Um, sure. The short answer is all of the above. Uh, I think to some degree that he's probably the most overrated communicator as president in the you know the modern or you know television internet age. Uh, in that um, he he he's very good at. Um, making arguments um, and um, um, and speaking uh, rationally uh, about are the challenges we face and how to solve them, but he, he um, has done a very poor job 
at connecting with voters emotionally and 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 um, and then um, galvanizing the country's will to act. Uh, and I think part of that also is um, communication failure, not just what he's saying, but um, where he's saying it and how often he's saying it. I think one of the, the big um, uh, shortcomings of his presidency is what he didn't, what he actually did do in the speech he hasn't done before, which is he, he identified four key priorities. Um, and throughout his president, he's done a lot. He's, he's touched in a lot of the country in a lot of different ways, and many conservatives say in far too many ways. But um, he, he has not been able to communicate um, priorities to the country, what his agenda is, and to reinforce it over and over and over again. And it seems like we've lost Dan there, but we are in our last minute. So just uh, very quickly, uh, Nikki Haley, I thought, gave one of the best rebuttals. We've had some bad rebuttals. Uh, I don't want to go into them specifically. But she also took a knock at Trump. Uh, I thought she did a great line. Today we live in a time of threats like few others in recent memory. During anxious time, it can be tempting to follow the siren call of the angriest voices. We must resist that temptation. No one who's willing to work hard, abide by our laws, and love our traditions should ever feel unwelcome in this country. So true. So true. And one other thing I wanted to thank is a great tweet that I saw from, uh, with regard to who can out pro Israel uh, each other on the Republican side. Ted Cruz said he would invite Netanyahu to be the first State of the Union, uh, to, the, to be a guest of the first State of the Union. And uh, Safir jokes, not to be outdone, Rubio says that he would ask Netanyahu to give the State of the Union address. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class, and we hope to have you next week. Thank you to our new sponsor, S4 Group, S4GRP.com. Scroll down, you'll find access to the month to the weekly political email, politics, and policy. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs coming up on the Nachum Single Network. <laughs>